Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is Giles Milton, host of the Unknown History Podcast, and you're listening to a special mini-series from historian Jack Kelly, author of Edge of Anarchy, on railroad barons, the Gilded Age, and the greatest labour uprising in America. Hi, I'm Jack Kelly, and this is part five of the labour special, The Strike. The Pullman Strike was the greatest uprising of working people in American history. If you haven't been listening to parts one through four of this special mini-series inspired by my book, The Edge of Anarchy, I encourage you to do so. It sets the stage for what I'm about to describe. It all started in the spring of 1894 at the Pullman Works on Chicago's far south side, one of the largest factories in the country. Workers there made rail cars, including the sleeping cars that the company was famous for and that I describe in more detail in part three. Most of the workers lived in the adjacent company town. Their homes were owned by the company, which tried to control their lives on and off the job. Company founder George Pullman had cut employees' wages that winter, but demanded that they continue to pay exorbitant rents for their homes. After the rent was taken out of their pay, many workers had only a few dollars to show for two weeks' hard labor. One employee's check amounted to only two cents. He had it framed as an emblem of the company's contempt. But low pay and high rents were only the beginning of the workers' complaints. The piecework Pullman demanded meant that they had to maintain a frantic pace to make a decent wage. Foreman routinely abused workers. Company spies were everywhere, in the factory and in the town. Suspicion and resentment soon erupted into a strike. George Pullman's strategy was simply to close the plant and wait out his employees. Business was slow anyway, and his company was still making a steady stream of passenger fees from his sleeping cars. The Pullman workers had joined the American Railway Union, the massive new labor organization started the year before by Eugene Debs, whose backstory I give in part four. It included all railroad-connected workers. That June in Chicago, the union was holding its first convention. Pullman workers appeared and asked for the members' support for their strike. One of the most eloquent speakers was 19-year-old Jenny Curtis, a seamstress from the Pullman plant. She told the delegates, We ask you to come along with us because we are not just fighting for ourselves, but for decent conditions for workers everywhere. Although Debs was cautious about escalating the confrontation, the members voted to cease handling all Pullman cars on the nation's rail lines until the strike was settled. They thought this would cripple Pullman revenues and force the company to negotiate. The railroad corporations 
decided to back Pullman. Even though the strike was not directed against these companies, they used it as an excuse to undermine the American Railway Union, which posed a threat they could not ignore. The boycott began on June 26, 1894. Instead of allowing workers to unhook Pullman cars, railroad managers declared the trains would not run unless they included the cars. They even added Pullman cars to trains that normally didn't carry them. The workers who refused to handle the cars were fired. The railroad employees responded by virtually shutting down the nation's rail lines, especially in the West. In an age when so much of the country's commerce depended on rail transport, and when many cities were virtually stranded without rail access, the strike quickly grew into a national crisis. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The upheaval raised fundamental questions about American society. Workers said there were two types of capital. Money capital came from those who had accumulated excess wealth. Muscle capital represented the time and hard work of the employees. Why should the owners of money capital make all the decisions and reap all the profits while those who contributed muscle capital had to fight for a living wage? The Pullman Company was a good example of this. George Pullman said he was forced to slash workers' pay, but he continued to distribute very generous dividends to his shareholders even during the Depression. And what about the duty that corporations owed to society? Although they posed as strictly private entities, all corporations operated under privileges handed to them by government charters. The railroads in particular have been given subsidies and land grants from public coffers, much as corporations today are offered tax breaks to locate a plant in a community. Americans believed in property rights. They believed in the virtue of free enterprise. But they also believed in the right of a citizen to receive a decent wage and to be treated with dignity in the workplace. In the Pullman strike, these two values came into direct conflict. Was a person's labor, which was in essence his or her life, simply a commodity whose price was to be determined by the laws of supply and demand? Or would the rights of American democracy be extended to the workplace so that every employee was treated as a human being? That was the big question that had finally come to a head. Pullman's employees were simply calling for an independent arbitrator to decide what was fair. George Pullman had declared that there was nothing to arbitrate. Neither he nor the railroad corporations would budge. The New York Times said that what had started out as an industrial strike had grown, had become, in reality, 
a struggle between the greatest and most powerful railroad labor organization and the entire railroad capital. It soon became clear that it would be a fight to the finish. The effects of the strike began to be felt beyond the rail yards. The price of meat and other foods skyrocketed. Businesses from mines to sawmills had to shut down for lack of transportation. A shortage of coal closed power plants. Ice became scarce. Commuters couldn't get to work. Rioters congregated along rail junctions to let loose their anger. They blocked the trains that supervisors tried to run in spite of the boycott. They smashed windows in passenger trains hauling Pullman cars. Eugene Debs and other union officials worked tirelessly to keep the strike peaceful. Despite these minor incidents of vandalism, the workers held together and were on their way to winning the strike. At that point, President Grover Cleveland decided to intervene on behalf of the railroads. Cleveland's administration was deeply pro-business, and his attorney general, Richard Olney, held positions as a railroad lawyer and director while he was in office. He didn't see any conflict. Olney declared that the strike had brought the country to the ragged edge of anarchy. Rather than let the two sides work things out, Cleveland asked the courts to issue injunctions outlawing the strike. He sent federal soldiers into Chicago, Denver, Sacramento, and other hot spots to suppress the workers. This aggressive response succeeded. The military fired on rioters. Debs and other Union officers were arrested. Crowds were pushed back at Bayonet Point. Scabs began running trains, and the strike was broken. But the upheaval had been revealing. The strike illuminated the cracks in American society that threatened to become chasms. It raised questions about what the great social theorist Jade Adams called the code of social ethics under which we live. If the Pullman strike had succeeded, there was a chance that labor and management could have achieved the cooperative arrangement that Eugene Debs envisioned. Government-sponsored arbitration could have replaced strikes and conflict. Working people could have achieved the democracy and dignity in the workplace that they thought was their birthright as Americans. Instead, the great divide between individual rights and communal responsibility, between freedom and solidarity, remains unresolved, even in our own day. And that concludes this special Unknown History miniseries on American labor. My name's Jack Kelly, and I'm author of The Edge of Anarchy, The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America. You can find my book online and at bookstores near you. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to guest historian Jack Kelly. I'm your host, Giles Milton. Tune in to the Unknown History podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or at quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks for listening. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. 
You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex.com.